Good morning, everyone. There'll be two Bible readings this morning. First, Genesis uh, chapter 18, verses 20 through 32, page 14 in your pew Bible. And then Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13, page 1016. The Lord said the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see what they have done is bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if, there are, what if only 40 are found there, he said. For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Now from Luke. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He then said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers of, of your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though, if you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Okay, here's our no pressure invitation to the children's moment. I don't put anybody <laughs> on the spot, but if anybody would like to come up, you're very welcome. You don't have to. I think we got a couple takers, maybe. Deciding, debating. 
No? Wow, I don't even, I don't have ice cream. Ah! Oh! Hi, sweetheart. So precious. Wow, children and animals. I am not going to do very well this morning. <laughs> Hi there. Will you remind me, is your name Eva or Ava? Eva. 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 That's easy for me to remember. That's my grandmother's name. Yeah? We're talking about prayer this morning. Do you pray, Eva? Do you think about prayer? Like, do you pray sometimes before a meal? Do you, like, say a blessing on the food sometimes? Or I know when you come up here, we pray, right? And I think there are lots of different ways to pray. Like, when I'm thinking about what I'm going to say in the children's sermon this moment, I think about you. And you're in my heart. When I'm, right, when I'm thinking about what I'm going to say right now, I'm trying to think about things that would be meaningful to you, and you're in my heart. And I think that's kind of a way of praying for you, because we're connected in that moment. And I think that that's what we do anytime we pray. And there are so many different ways to pray. A really famous Jewish teacher, who I love a lot, talked about praying with his feet because he would march for the rights of all people, especially African-American people. He would march and protest for their rights, and he said it was like his feet were praying. And so I think when you draw a pretty picture for your parents, your hands are praying. When you go on an errand with your mother and give her company, your feet are praying. And when you bow your head and close your eyes, like we do a lot of times when we pray, I think your heart is praying. And whenever you're doing that, you're connected to all other people of prayer. They're part of your family, and you're part of them. Isn't that a nice thought? Want to say a prayer together? Thank you. Gracious God, God of justice and creativity, this is our prayer. We are open to you. We seek you. We want to listen and be moved by you. We want to attune our hearts and our minds to your divine dream that all will be well. Join us as we know you always do. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. I have to say that it's a real honor and a privilege to be here today to share with you, to, to worship with you, first of all, to be a part of this lovely worship service, to be here filling in for Rick, not that there's any possibility of ever filling in for Rick. Someone said earlier, I'm just a fill-in preacher, so I guess that's what I am. That's okay, though. I don't mind doing that. And to be here with Renee on this Sunday, what a blessing that is. Um, I just feel like I should be sitting down listening to her speak and her singing, you know, she is really a witness to the Lord and all that the Lord has done in her life. Pretty amazing. <clears throat> I've known Rick for over 30 years, just as Michael said. Uh, we went to seminary together. He was like a year ahead of me. He came down from the wilds of Oregon to uh, study process theology at Claremont, because John Cobb was a big, uh, big guy there. Actually, he was a little bitty guy, but he was, he was a big name. What I liked about John Cobb is that he wasn't an ivy tower somewhere, you know? Most of the professors you never saw except when he went to class. John Cobb and his lovely wife, Jean, were in the cafeteria almost every day having, you know, chili dogs with everybody else. It was pretty amazing. Kind of humble guy. 
So Rick came down from Oregon to study process theology. That's what he thought it was going to be his, his, I guess, his goal in life. I don't know what he planned to do with that, but that's what his whole intent. I was living in Southern California. I went to seminary to Claremont because I wanted to be a preacher, a pastor, and a church, and I just saw my trajectory would be like that through the years. You know, you go from one church to the next, bigger church, bigger budget, more people. You know, I was going to be the, the next uh, Rick Warren, the next uh, Joel Osteen, but, you know, you've all heard of those people, and you've not heard of me. <clears throat> So, you know, it's crazy how those paths kind of change over time, don't they? Rick told me once, and if, he, if you ever tell him this, I'll deny it. Rick told me once that he never envisioned himself being in the church. Oh, so they, 31 years later, he's still in the same church, serving the Lord in this church. I wanted to be in the church. I'm not in the church right now. Well, I am now, today. But I'm not in the church. I currently have been working for the last 12 years as a full-time hospice chaplain. That is huge, but it's not what I set out to do. It's not what I thought God was calling me to do. So it's kind of funny how, you know, the Lord does work in mysterious ways. None of that is what I came to talk about today, but <laughs> it's okay. We're talking about prayer this morning. I don't pretend to stand here and be an expert on prayer. Although people ask me to pray often as a pastor, as a chaplain, and I don't really, I'm not a source of authority about prayer. Maybe none of us are. We have a lot of questions. So I thought maybe we'd just turn to the scriptures this morning. Maybe we'd find through our scriptures an understanding more about what prayer is, especially the words of Jesus. And so we had that reading from, from Genesis this morning about Abraham and Sarah in the desert and they're entertaining guests who have come to their village. Before our reading this morning, that's the scenario of that particular 18th chapter of Genesis. Abraham and Sarah are in the desert, and they welcome strangers into their abode. Their abode really is literally a tent in the desert. Now, we've had some pretty warm weather recently, and I can't imagine spending a time in a tent out in that kind of weather. But that's the scenario, though. That's what they were going through. A month ago, we were attending a friend's wedding. He's a pastor in a Presbyterian church, and they had a lovely June wedding. The trouble is, it was in 29 palms. I wanted to grab him by the lapels and say, Les, why in the world would you invite us out to 29 palms in June for a wedding? It was a lovely affair. But I can't imagine living in that environment, especially before air conditioning. So Abraham and Sarah, they're out in the desert, they're in this tent, and three visitors come to them. We find out later that one of those visitors happens to be God, and two of those are visiting angels. But they appear more or less like normal human beings. And so Abraham invites them in, and he provides hospitality. Because of his hospitality, God says that when I come back here next year, you will have a child. Of course, you know that Abraham is nearly 100, and that Sarah is about 90, so the possibilities of that are... A little far-fetched in today's thinking. I know women are waiting longer to have children, but 90? I mean, come on. <laughs> so anyway, but we know that happens, right? It happens because you know, they have a child the following year. To, to fulfill that promise that God made of Abraham, that he would make of him a great nation. You can't really make anybody a great nation unless they have children to follow, it seems, descendants. And then in this chapter, in this part of the chapter this morning, these three set off to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. We find that out in our reading. 
Evidently, everybody knows that Sodom and Gomorrah has been bad town. They've been bad since they began. If you look earlier in Genesis, you'll find out that they've got a reputation for being full of evil people. And so it's decided that they're going to be destroyed. God sends the angels off to reconnoiter, a reconnaissance mission to see if indeed what they've heard about Simon and uh, Sodom and Gomorrah are bad. And if so, he's going to destroy the town. And, at, and Abraham is left there with God. And they begin to negotiate this. And that's a lovely image of God, isn't it? This is not the distant, aloof God of Genesis 1 that just sort of speaks things into being, let there be light, and there was light. This is the God image that we get in the Garden of Eden with God just sort of walking with Adam and Eve in the twilight, the dusk of the early evening, in a relationship. And this is the sort of God that we have in the story today. Abraham and God set out to negotiate for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham is not asking for himself. His name is not on the line. He's done nothing wrong, but he's concerned about all these people in Sodom and Gomorrah, even though most of those people are just pretty bad, despicable people, evidently, by all the rumors that are swelling around. But Adam sets out nonetheless to pray for those people, not just for the righteous folks, but for the unrighteous as well, because he knows that God is a just and a righteous and a caring God and that God should bend over backwards to care for others. And so he goes to, to God and he says, what if he found 50 people? I know there's a lot of people there, they're pretty bad, but what if he found 50 righteous people? You, surely you wouldn't destroy the whole city for those 50 people because you're a good God. You're a just, righteous, benevolent God. You wouldn't do that, would you? That's how our children treat us when they want to butter us up for something, don't they? You're such a loving parent, you're a great dad. Okay, now what have you done? Or what do you want to do? So you're a good God. You wouldn't want to destroy those people if there were 50 righteous. And God says, well, okay, for 50 righteous, I won't destroy the city. And you heard the reading this morning. What about 45? Well, okay, 45, I won't destroy the city. How about 40? Would you go 40? It's almost like an auctioneer, I guess, you know. How about 30? I know I'm kind of pressing my luck here, but what about 30? Well, okay, for 30, I won't destroy the city either. 20? 10? Okay, for 10, okay. For 10, I will not destroy the city. Abraham bargains him down to 10, and then God leaves, and presumably at the end of this chapter, everything is good because he just leaves and nothing happens until the next chapter we find out that evidently the town was beyond redeeming and it does get destroyed. So maybe 10 wasn't a magical number anyway. Maybe it's just the fact that sometimes when we're talking to God, when we're praying to God, we have to negotiate with God. Because what Adam is doing is not just negotiating. Adam, Abraham, I keep saying Adam, but it's Abraham. They're both A words. Abraham is really kind of praying to God, isn't he? He's negotiating with God. He's petitioning to God on behalf of the righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah as well as the unrighteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. Because if God spares the town, not only are the righteous people going to live, but the unrighteous people are going to be surviving too. They kind of benefic- they're benefit, uh, they, they're beneficiaries of God's goodness in that. So Abraham prays not for the righteous, but by extension for all those dirty, rotten scoundrels in Sodom and Gomorrah that really don't deserve to live, but they're going to anyway because of the goodness of God. So maybe he asks God to forgive them in the hopes that maybe they'll change their mind through God's grace and start living a better life. 
Or maybe he's just a compassionate, caregiving guy, and he's concerned about them and doesn't want anything bad to happen to them, and he knows that God is compassionate and caring too. Or maybe he just thinks that unless you ask, you won't receive. Maybe that's it. Maybe he just thinks if you don't ask, you won't receive. And so he asks. He might as well ask. And it seems to work because God negotiates and decides not to destroy the city right then. So I think there are two really important things to talk about in this particular opening scriptures from Genesis. One is the idea of hospitality and how important it is and how tenuous and precious life is. Not only in the desert, boy, it's got to be precious and tenuous out there, isn't it? When we were out there for that wedding, we stayed in the, Fair, the Fairfield Inn and Suites. We had a lovely room, a huge room with two queen-sized beds. It was air-conditioned. We know we had a continental breakfast the next morning. There's a lovely pool out there. I can't imagine living in 29 Palms before all of that was there. In fact, I was speculating, can you imagine living out in this barren area? Who would settle there? Why would somebody move from, say, Missouri and then get as far as 29 Palms and go, well, this looks pretty good. I think we'll just stop here. There can't be much beyond here. So let's just stop here. Some people obviously did, right? And they put a lovely marine base there, and it's all cool. They're nice people, but um, it's 29 palms. <laughs> Life is tenuous in the desert. It's tenuous in 29 palms. And it's tenuous for us today, isn't it? Life is precious. We have to just look at the headlines this morning and hear about the terrible shooting in, on Friday in Munich to know about how tenuous life is. Or just a few days before, we can talk about the slaughter in Nice or the killings in Florida. Nearly every day it seems like there's something going on tragic in this life, but I do like what Renee was singing about, that you know, we, just, we really should think about the good and think about the blessings that we have. Think about that. We can always think about the terrible things, but what's more important is that we don't let those terrible things overwhelm us and take away our hope and the positive nature of life, because I believe that God is a good and a loving God, despite what's going on in this world, and that good will win out in the end. And maybe this sort of a Pollyanna approach, but what the heck's wrong with being Pollyanna? I always had a thing for Haley Mills, anyway. It was a British accent, I think it was. I don't know. Those are not scripted in here, by the way, either. Life is tenuous and precious, and secondly, prayer is an important part of our lives. It needs to be an important part of our lives. Everyday prayer, morning and evening, whatever you want to do in your prayer life, before meals, after meals, before you begin work, after you come home from work, it's always important to stop and offer prayer for others. Abraham was petitioning, praying to God on behalf of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Notice that Abraham was not asking God to bless him and his family or asking God to increase his herds or his land. He was praying for others. And that's what petitionary prayer is about, intercessory prayer. God wants us to come to him in prayer and bring those concerns, our own concerns, and those concerns of others to him. I know it's, we live in a hectic world, and it's a busy time, and we're probably busier than we've ever been in our lives. We have so much more to do. We have so much leisure time and so many technological wonders in our lives that don't make our lives easier, at least in my life, they make it more complicated. I can never get my phone to work, my tablet to work. I can never get Wi-Fi when I want to get it. 
it's just crazy and you have to log into everything. And now I've got to worry about finding Pokemon, wherever that is. I don't know what that is, so how am I supposed to find it? But they could be here today, for all I know. I went to get a new phone recently at T-Mobile, and the guy says, what do you want to do with your phone? So he could sell me the right phone. I said, well, believe it or not, I actually use my telephone to talk on. Which, you know, kind of set him back a little bit. But then he listened, and, he, and I said, and I do a little texting, and I do some internet, you know, some surfing, some emailing. I said, one th I'm not streaming a lot, I'm not playing games, and one thing I'm not doing is looking for Pokemon. So he said, well, then you need to get this phone. It led me over to this little, it was a rotary phone. <laughs> you need, this, is, this is what you need. Here it is. Wow. That's good. I like that. How's that tie into prayer? I'm not sure. We need to spend more time in prayer. We have the time. It's just setting aside the time. Putting aside the phone, putting aside the tablet, putting aside the Pokemon searches, putting aside whatever texting you need to do for the moment, spending time with God in prayer. Not that I'm lecturing you about this, but encouraging you to do this because this is how our lives should be as brothers and sisters in Christ, as children of God. It was said of John Wesley, you know, John Wesley, along with his brother Charles Wesley, founded what has become known as the United Methodist Church, pretty big institution. John Wesley traveled 50,000 miles a year in the late 1700s on horseback, spreading the gospel. He was a circuit rider. 50,000 miles a year he, he rode on horseback and buggy to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to the early colonies, and he spent two hours a day in prayer. He said, unless I begin my day wrapped in prayer, I can't get anything done. So surely if he can travel 50,000 miles a year, I don't even drive that many miles a year, and I work as a hospice chaplain to do a lot of driving. So if he can spend that amount of time in prayer and still travel 50,000 miles and establish what would become the United Methodist Church, maybe I can spend a few extra hours on my knees or even a few moments behind the wheel. I'm saying a lot of things behind the wheel when I'm driving. More of it should be prayer, I'm thinking. More of it should be prayer. Wow. In the gospel reading for today, Jesus also talks about prayer. It's interesting, in this 11th chapter, Jesus has been off praying, we're told. And then when he's done praying, his disciples come to him and they say, teach us to pray. They know there's something about Jesus that they want to emulate. They want to know how to pray. Evidently, John the Baptist in our gospel reading has taught his disciples a prayer or how to pray. They want Jesus. We want to know how to pray. You've taught, John taught his disciples, why don't you teach us how to pray? And so Jesus tells them what has become. He gives them what is, we have come to know as the Lord's Prayer. And he, he begins with this. When you pray, he says, start this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We start with God first, addressing God as a loving father, as a parent, as someone we can interact with, someone who's close to us, not that distant God of speaking things into existence in Genesis, but a God that we can negotiate with, a God we can be in a relationship with. Start with God as our Heavenly Father, and hallowed be thy name. And let's begin with a, an understanding of God as 
beyond us, as reverent, as awe-inspiring, as almighty, as all-loving, as all-powerful, unless we start with a proper understanding and reverence and respect for God, not just some flippant, you know, God bless you sort of prayer, but an understanding that God is the source of all life and the reason that we exist. We can't begin praying until we realize that and acknowledge God's place in our lives. Hallowed be thy name, Jesus said. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, we go to next. After we establish the proper respect for God in our prayer life, then we pray not, we don't start asking for things that we want right away. We ask that God's will be done, God's kingdom be established in our lives. Not what we want, but what God already has in mind for us on earth as it is in heaven. So obviously in heaven, God's will, God's kingdom has already been established. The perfection of life is already there. We just pray that this beautiful image that God has already established in heaven can be realized on earth as it's already been played out in heaven. I never think about that until I... Every now and then I realize that things are already the way they need to be in God's domain. It's just taking us longer to assimilate that, to bring that into being in our lives. Thy will be done, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So that part is about God. We begin with praying those things to take place. And then Jesus says we can start asking about our daily needs. Give us today our daily bread. Not what we can amass for the future, not so we can set aside a lot of, you know, 401ks and stocks and bonds and investments and IPOs. Those are all probably well and good, but that's not what we should be praying about. Just pray that God will give us what we need for today, because that's all we really have, isn't it? The old this, this saying about yesterday is past, we can't change that at all, and tomorrow is only the future. We have no bearing on what that will be like. All we have is this day. So we pray that God would give us today our daily bread, just enough to get through the day, and maybe enough to share along the way if possible. And we also pray for those other things that uh, forgiveness of sins, Because God knows we're going to be bumping into one another, interacting with one another, and we're going to have a lot of opportunities to cause people harm, or at least hurt their feelings, or say things that aren't kind. That we should be praying for forgiveness of our sins, and offering forgiveness to those people who have bumped into us, or cut us off, or angered us. And that we should pray that we would avoid temptation, and if we are not able to avoid temptation, at least, Lord, deliver us from evil. That's how we are to pray, Jesus says. You start with God, you get that respect for God in place, you hallow yourself before God's name, and then you can begin to pray for God's kingdom and those daily needs of your lives. But Jesus doesn't just leave it there, so he goes on and gives some people some examples. How you should pray, things you should pray about, concrete examples of that, because we all need those. We don't just need doctrine, we need examples. So Jesus says, okay, what if somebody comes to you at night and they're going to stay with you and you don't have anything in your larder to provide for them? You know, you forgot to go to Ralph's and get some stuff. You don't have any bread or lunch meat. You can't fix any veggies and dip. What are you going to do for these people? 
You know, you're supposed to be good hosts. You can't just send them to bed hungry. So you go next door to your neighbor. You go next door to your neighbor, and you knock on his door, and you say, hey, I've got some guests that came in late at night. I wasn't expecting them, but they're here, and I've got nothing to feed them. And the neighbor, of course, is going to go, you know, leave me alone. It's late. It's dark. You know, the news is off. I'm, you know, even, um, you know, who are late-night talk show hosts? They're all off. The kids are in bed. You're going to wake them up. Leave us. Leave me alone. Jesus said, it's not because he's your neighbor or your friend who will give you things, but if you continue to knock on his door, continue to persist, continue to annoy him almost, if you continue to ask, eventually he's going to get up and just give you what you need to get you the heck out of there, to leave you alone. And that's how prayer is supposed to be about, continuing to ask, continuing to petition, because you have needs, and we have to presume that God God knows what we need, but we still ask nonetheless. Why do we ask nonetheless? If it's already established in heaven, and it's just being realized on earth, why do we need to even ask? Because God knows what we need. We should just sit back and wait for God to deliver what we need, right? That doesn't work very well, usually. It doesn't work when I've tried looking for jobs. Well, I'm a qualified person. I'm going to sit by the phone until someone calls me. Well... That doesn't happen too often. Has to happen in my life. Usually, you have to send out something called a resume, I mean, or apply for jobs. Like those people who think they're going to win the lottery, right? I'm going to wait till God, you know, I win the lottery, and nothing ever happens. Week after week after week, you don't win the lottery. Your faith starts to fade, and suddenly you hear a voice from heaven: "Buy a ticket." You know, you got to buy a ticket. You got to put in the work. Prayer is about asking about God about things. Even if God knows what's best for us, we go, we ask for God what we need nonetheless because that's how it is in a relationship, isn't it? Relationships, whether it's between your children and, or your spouse or your significant other or God, relationships are about asking and receiving, about giving and taking, negotiating and talking, and that's how it is with God. We ask and God gives. Not always do we get what we want, but we get oftentimes what God wants best for us. When I deal with hospice patients, oftentimes people ask me, you know, just pray for me. So I'll pray for them. Well, what do you want me to pray for about, I ask. I don't presume to know what they want or what's best for them, so I, what would you like to pray about? You know, what's on your mind? What's on your heart? Because I may think of one thing, and they may have something entirely else in mind when they're thinking about Because they're the one on that hospital bed, that gurney, they're the one dying dealing with a terminal illness. So I can't presume to know what they need. So I ask them, what would you like me to pray about? And sometimes they say, you know, I'm going to pray that I get well. And I've got to tell you, that I've prayed for a lot of people to get well. And I don't know if they mean, sometimes they literally mean, I expect for God to just heal this cancer that's riddled my body. God's going to remove it. I have faith, and God's going to cure me from that. And we've all read or heard stories on occasion where that happens, where people are miraculously cured of some disease. But it hasn't happened in my experience very often at all. Most of the time, the people still die because they have a terminal illness. They have metastasized cancers and things like that. So maybe we need to pray about other things. What else can we pray about? What other types of healings are there other than literal physical healings? Maybe there's some emotional healings that need to be taking place. Maybe you've been, had a falling out with your son and you haven't talked to your son in three years. Maybe it's time to heal that. 
bring that to fruition. Maybe you need to make some amends, or someone else needs to make amends with you. Or maybe you need to pray for spiritual healing, ask God's forgiveness, forgive others, reestablish a relationship with God that you haven't had for a while because you've kind of drifted away and now God is coming back into your life in a real and a powerful way. Maybe there are other types of healing than just merely physical healings. So at those points in time, even though I'm negotiating with God or praying to God for this person, I'm praying that God's will be done and that God will bring that person what they need. And maybe, just maybe dying and ending someone's physical suffering is a form of healing. Maybe it's a release of the human body and a release of this spiritual soul to be reunited with God. It's hard for us to grasp and to let go of that, but maybe that's the healing that needs to take place, and eventually it will for all of us. Prayer is about asking. If we, we ask in the hope of getting, and if we believe in the fairness of God and the benevolence of God, if we believe in the love of God, then we have to believe that God wants to and is giving us what we want and need even before we ask. It's just waiting to come to fruition. And we ask because we are in this wonderful relationship with God who desires to give us what we ask. And that is no more evident than it is with our relationship with our children. Jesus said, who among you as a, heavenly, as a parent, if their son asked for a fish, would give him a serpent? Or if he asked for an egg, would give him a, uh, a scorpion? We wouldn't do that. If we've had children, some of us haven't had children, we've been around children. If some, our children or anyone's children need something, we will do whatever we can to help them get that unless we think it would be detrimental to them. But we will try to give what we need, what they need. And that's how we are as, as parents, Jesus says. We wouldn't give the bad things to our children, we only want to give the good things, and that's how God is indeed. When I was little, I grew up in Indiana, I wanted this toy for Christmas. It was some sort of mechanical rabbit. Pretty cheesy, I'm sure, back in those days. And it rolled on wheels on the ground, on the carpet, had some sort of swivel in there. It could change directions and go in different ways, just a round mechanical thing. And he would, the, way it would the way it changed directions, if it got hit with a rubber-tipped dart that you would shoot from a dart gun. Now, why my parents would get this hyperactive boy a dart-shooting gun is beyond my, is beyond my understanding. But that's what I wanted for that Christmas. I think it was probably eight or nine. And my mother, God bless her heart, she was going to get that. It was a very popular toy, kind of like when the Cabbage Patch dolls came out several years ago. They were very popular, hard to find. This toy was hard to find. My mother didn't drive in those days, so she had to take the bus to downtown Indianapolis where all the major department stores, this is before the malls were everywhere, she took a bus downtown Indianapolis in the cold, in the wintertime in Indianapolis, to find this stupid rabbit toy that I wanted, you know? And my parents didn't make a lot of money, but they always made sure that my sister and I had a lot of, you know, had a nice Christmas. That Christmas came, and I had so many wonderful gifts under the, under the tree, you know, just in a frenzy, just tearing packages apart, you know, throwing things everywhere, as most kids do. 
And I got to all, the end of all those packages, and guess what? There was no rabbit game, no dart gun. What the? I'm going, what is this? There was no rabbit. My poor mother was in tears. She was sobbing because, you know, Larry boy, I, I know you wanted that toy, but it just wasn't possible to find, and Santa was out of them, and I couldn't find any, and oh, I'm so sorry that I couldn't give you this, that you didn't get this toy. And you know what? That was the best gift I ever got, not getting the rabbit toy. Because the gift that I really got was my mother going out of her way, going downtown on a bus, searching through the department stores in Indianapolis in the cold to try to find this stupid toy that I thought I needed and wanted. That was the gift, her efforts to do that. I can't remember too many other gifts I got over the years, but I can remember vividly the gift I didn't get. And indirectly, I guess I did. That's what prayer is about, it seems. Giving good things to others, asking for God's blessings in our lives, interceding and petitioning for others, and praying that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus concludes in the footnote in the Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel, that Lord's Prayer that we will pray very shortly, by the way. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. After our prayer life is over, we relinquish our lives back to God, knowing that God is still in control. We may not understand all the answers, we may not have all the answers, but we have to believe and can rest assured that God is ultimately in control of our lives and that it is God's glory that we seek. For mine is the kingdom and the power and the glory now and forever. Amen. Will you join me in prayer? Loving God, in so many ways, you spur us to action. The pinch of conscience, the inspiration of a role model, the mighty urge to set things right. From disquiet to outrage, our spirits are full of the awareness of injustice and the clanging discordance of inequality in our world. In the face of this conflicted existence, you call us to live in balance with ourselves, our neighbors, and our planet to take the small daily steps of respect, compassion, and patience that lead us to justice. You call us to search for you and for our true good selves in prayer. We take a stand, we join a march, we make our lives a living prayer in search for the common good. We raise our hands, raise our voices, raise a child, be a child, ask why, again and again and again until the answers begin to make sense. God of wholeness, the questions of health and well-being don't always make sense to us. Why do some get sick and why do only some get well? In the face of these questions, we trust in your desire for all to be whole. God who is always good, we stand in your light of life awakened. 
we see with new eyes and we taste for the first time the fruit of peace grown in the sunlight of equality with leaves that will not wither and roots so deep they find the living water of a healthy earth. Water that flows free and wild and plentiful like a mighty river of justice rushing with the dreams of a people who will never be thirsty again. To the banks of this mighty and gracious river we bring our all, our worries and our triumphs, our questions, our fears, our celebrations. We bring them all to this water that is both abundant and still. We gather together at that holy river to pray as Jesus taught his disciples to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.